Hello. Today we plunge back into Sir Orfeo, starting with his quite alarming entrance into Fairy, and going through the somewhat surprisingly uneventful end of the poem. Today's class is the session for which we had a special guest, Daniel Devizet, journalist for the Washington Post. If you read his story in the Post on my work with this podcast, you will notice that he quotes a few lines from Sir Orfeo that we discuss in today's class. Since I'm on the subject, I'd just like to take a moment to thank Daniel for his extremely flattering article. I feel highly honored by his piece. Thanks also go to the editors and staff over at the Post for their generosity and interest. All in all, that's been a pretty amazing experience, and I'm very grateful. Now, on to those strange, mostly dead people. Okay, good morning. Um, so, at the end of class last time, I stopped us right before we could start discussing the gruesome and highly peculiar courtyard of the fairy kingdom, um, so that we all have been dwelling in a strange, bizarre kind of stasis and suspended animation over the last three days, kind of like unto the poor victims of the... Oh, well, look at me, already prejudicing the discussion by calling them victims. Um, what exactly do we see? When he comes in, well now, now, we should, of course, remember the context. He's followed this group of ladies, right? So there are these six, 60 ladies out, out hawking, and he, well, falconing, and he follows them in, right? So he, he's been right behind them the whole way. He sees them go in the gate. He goes to the gate, knocks, gets admission. And when he comes in, there before him is this spectacle. What exactly does he see? Beth? Yeah, he sees people, some, they're, they're decapitated people. There are, what else do we see? What variety of gruesomeness exactly do we behold? I, I, I want to make sure, not just to, to, you know, sort of drag it out for the sake of savoring the gruesomeness, but I want to make sure to see that we can see some patterns here. This is a really puzzling passage. Of all of the passages in the whole poem, this is the easiest one to sort of read and then respond by simply saying, whoa. Weird. Don't get that. Let's move on. But I don't want to do that. So I want, I, I want to try to look at it carefully here. Emma? Um, the right. Strangled. Those are strangled while they ate. So they seem like, in other words, people who seem to be, to be choking to death. Uh, strangled not in the sense of somebody like wrapping their hands around their throat, but that, that they're, they're choked because they were strangled while they ate. So, you know, choked on fish bones or whatever. Right, right, which would, of course, uh, women in childbed would have been associated with death much more heavily uh, than, than now. Uh, I forget the statistics, something like one in three, one in four uh, I, I, women in childbed would be either in very serious danger or, or, or actually die. If you successfully bore you know, a large number of children and survived, you were very extraordinary. This is one of the reasons why, if you go back and you read, you know, in medieval history and you're reading, you know, the history of kings and, 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 and all these other masculine figures, and you keep noticing how many wives they have, like, and John of God's fourth wife did, well, uh, because the women kept dying in childbirth very frequently. Um, so uh, it was a very real... Um, a, a very natural addition to this particular set of people who seem to be dead, dying. What exactly do they seem? But anyway, Kat, go ahead. It seems like they're sort of deaths that were common or were expected to happen. None of these seem exceedingly unusual. 
Good. I, I think that's a really great point. There's nothing really bizarre about this, right? This is not, this is not exactly a freak show. These are all things which could very easily happen. Drowning. Impaling. These people are armed on horses, but appear to have deadly wounds. People, they die in battle. Yeah, that happens. People who choked at the dinner table. People who were burned to a crisp. Does that seem unusual? Well, no. No, not at all. Um, This, of course, especially uh, for women was a continual concern. If you're wearing long skirts... Uh, uh, dealing with open flames and, and, and around a large and open hearth, catching on fire and burning to death was actually quite, quite a real hazard, and again, something that happened a lot. Um, so no, uh, burning, that's, that's very common. Childbed, as I said, what could, be, what could be more sort of a custom than that? And some of them are just sleeping, right? Which seems to be evoking that people just, just, just dropping dead in their sleep. So I think that Kat makes a really important point. This is sort of normal, I almost said normal life, though of course not, not quite so much, right? Normal death, anyway. So, what are we seeing? Are these dead people? Are we seeing dead people? <laughs> what, 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 are we, what does the text say? Mac, what, what do we see? Uh, well, it says that uh, there were folk that were deeper in the They were brought here, some are dead, some aren't. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I mean, that that line uh, you, you've hit right the the, the lines there, three eighty nine and three ninety, um, and we see the two things that are both very important on three ninety. That these are people and that that are thought dead and nar nucht. They're thought dead, but they're not, and we get an emphatic double negative there, right? Nar nucht. They are not dead. But they're thought dead, presumably by the people that they left behind. And how did they get there, Mac? Well, they were brought here. They were brought there. Presumably by the fairy. By fiery, right? By magic, yeah. Yeah, just as Herodotus was. Because there's Herodotus, what's she doing? Sleeping under the imp tree, right? Where, we, right where the fairies found her and where we last saw her. Now, I don't think she was asleep on the morning that the fairies took her when she was surrounded by, like, a thousand knights in armor, right, as Sorophia was vainly trying to protect her. But anyway, that was where the fairies found her, and she was under that same tree. Go ahead. Maybe all the people who are, like, mutilated and whatnot are people whom the fairy king decided to, in fact, kill and then bring here, as he found earlier. Well, I mean, we do have his threat. This is just a more kind of macabre version of the Halls of Commanders. It's the moral story <laughs> Well, it, it does seem like a kind of storage facility, but uh, I will, I mean, you know, we, we, we looked at the time at how we don't see the motivation of the King of Fairy uh, for taking Herodotus exactly. I mean, we get the, 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 what seems to be not a coincidence that she is described as very exceptionally beautiful, uh, but we don't see, you know, like what he wants with her exactly other than it seems to add her to his to his entourage in general, but here it looks almost now like a collection rather than an entourage, right? Um, Which is a little bit... Have these people been rescued? I mean, they all seem to be in the process of dying, and some in the midst of quite a rapid process, as, for instance, the decapitated people, right? If they're not dead, they they can't have much time left, you'd think, right? Um, So, I mean, I guess, in theory... Right? You could magically capture someone 
between the time of decapitation and death, I think. I mean, I don't know the mechanics of it, but I guess that seems possible, right? Though a fine line, Christine? Um, I think, but she seems to be set apart, or Herod um, does, because doesn't it say here that she's underneath the infantry? Yes. And, um, Orpheo comes into Barry King's court, but everyone else is just sort of, I think they're just, they're just like standing around. They're not sort of like, I don't know. They, they seem to be like a part of this court where she's just kind of, she's like placed once again, like under the tree specifically. Like, like this, like as if this were like um, a purposeful setup. Right. Yeah. And it's, I'm not quite sure how to take that. I kind of suspect, but the way that it's emphasized, of course, comes at the end. And obviously he's really focused on, on that. Um, whether the, 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 the greater detail that we get about Herodotus is actually supposed to suggest that she really genuinely is singled out by the king of fairy among all the rest of them, or whether she's merely singled out by Orpheo, as of course she naturally would be. I would kind of lean towards the latter. Um, that is, he mentions several of them who are sleeping, and she seems to be one of those. But of course, we don't get the details of the other. Maybe there are, you know, marks that if, like, these other people's wives or husbands showed up, you know, they would notice, like, oh, yes, he's sleeping, just as he notices that she's sleeping under that same infantry that she... I I would suspect that it's supposed to reflect his own focus. Um, But uh, but I'm not sure. It's possible. Um, She... I think it's important, though, what you suggest about, in a sense, kind of her belonging there or being incorporated there uh, in a significant way. I think that we will see some of that in the fairy king's own discussion with Orpheo later on. Bill? Um, as far as the, as far as the, the not quite dead people, um, it could it be that like, they, when they were about to bury, and it seems like people are usually reluctant to leave fairy, so they didn't want to die when they got there because they like fairy so much, so they don't die. Right, so they, are they being given a reprieve then? See, here's the, one of the primary things that I still want to kind of tease out. Max suggested the possibility that these people who are here in various states of dismemberment and, uh, and, and torment, possibly, I don't I mean, are they suffering? Like the people who are still burning to death, uh, though not yet dying? Are they, are, they in, are they in pain? We don't really know. Um, but the question is, are the fairies torturing them? Or have the fairies rescued them? What do you think? Robert? I think it, someone said before about how the, the fairy king issued that little threat. Yeah. I think this is him playing out those they tried to escape or something. You know, the of course, but that, that's what I think it is. It's possible, but though the one thing I would say there, though, look at the difference between Herodis as he sees her and Herodotus as was threatened, right? We think if this, is, if this is the courtyard where would-be escapees of fairy are, are detained, wouldn't she be torn up here, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be how we would expect to not peacefully asleep under the infantry? Um, I mean, in fact, she's more peaceful than she was certainly during the 24 hours after her first visit from fairy. Baskin, what do you think? I remember like a... Um a description of his his uh, power almost because he's able to suspend these people about to die here and it's kind of like the same thing as if you have like a really extravagant court. 
you walk in, you know, there's huge pillars and tapestries and everything. It's like, look at my extravagance, look at this beauty, you know, I can, you know, suspend your death, I can, you know, give you all these wonders, you know, you can just stay here forever regardless. Yeah, it, it is uh, an unusual kind of beauty, I agree. But I do think that there's something there. Remember the strange kind of double life that we seem to be prompted to envision for Herodes, right? We, we just saw Herodes on horseback, right, with a falcon on her wrist going out for an outing. She goes through the gate, and then he comes in, and wham, there she is asleep under the imp tree like she's always been there. Which, of course, prompts the question, had he come... While she was out falconing, would she be there or would she not be there? Are any of the other people who are, you know, in various states of torment and dismemberment, were they out on the outing too? I see no reason to think they weren't if she was, right? So, one thing that we are clearly confronted with is something not really linear in terms of time. Now, of course, this is already suggested by the fact that we have living decapitated people, right? There's clearly, at the very least, some kind of stasis, but again, obviously, some kind of non-linearity. These people are, these are sort of this, these, these moments by people where they're about to die, which, of course, given everybody else, makes us wonder about what was actually going on under that imp tree. Right? We didn't see anything wrong. We didn't have any suspicion that anything was wrong. Her ladies were fine. She was taking a nap. Right? They were letting her take a nap. There were no issues. And then, well, until she wakes up and is horrified. Right? But given her lying under the imp tree in this context with all of these other people who have been decapitated and suffocated and burned and everything else, are we supposed to understand then, in retrospect, that she was actually going to be dying in her sleep, that she, she, she died or would have died, and that's why the fairy king came and took her, as he seems to have come and intervened right before the instant of death in the case of these other people? One of the things which would have been, I think, already in the minds of medieval people, because, again, in trying to figure out who fairies are and what they do, one of the leading candidates was always like are these dead people are they ghosts in some sense are they like the spirits of dead people who are in some kind of spiritual state that we don't quite understand that was one option that is the association with between fairies and death certainly the parallel with the sir orfeo story with the king the 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 orpheus story um also nudges us in that direction i mean the story upon the story that this one parallels is a story of a guy whose wife dies and that he descends to the underworld to talk to the gods of death to bring her back to the living world. So, again, as I said last time, even if we had been forgetful of that story, this moment, when we see all the people whose situations seem to par- seem both certainly to recall death, but even potentially to sort of evoke or suggest or parallel punishments in the underworld. This, this, now this starts to look kind of like the underworld. From the outside, it looks like the New Jerusalem. From inside, it looks a little, at least in the courtyard, it looks a little bit like hell. Um, so it, it's, I, th- I think definitely kind of pushes us in that direction. Jordan? Um, let me have a moment. I think we're skipping over to giving important lines that we're also understanding this. Um, let's see. We, number four, and some lay water and bound, even 
Yes. It's not just the dead, it's also people who have gone mad. Right, right, which seems to happen to Herodias after the fact, right? Um, yes, I agree, it's, it's not just dead people. Uh, it's, it's also insane people, apparently. Um, I agree that that does introduce a difference. And, see, it's hard. It's hard to, tang- to, to untangle, certainly, to feel really confident whether or not these states are a consequence of the fairy's actions. Again, Herodotus seems to go almost insane as a consequence of the fairy king's visit and his threats to her. Um, or is it like the prereq? Are these, are these victims, that is, victims of life who are being rescued? You know, in, in whose lives or in the prevention of whose deaths, in most cases, the fairy king is intervening? Basket? Could you argue that um, going insane is your mind dying, though? So, I mean, there's a bunch of people physically dying, but they're saying they're right before technically they're, them as themselves are dying in their head. Yeah, I mean, I. I we don't get any. Uh, yeah, yeah, we don't get any very clear directions, I think, in that. But, but I mean, I think that's a way to think about it. Um, certainly. If we certainly the introduction of the category, you know, being driven out of their minds, doesn't I think create the same kind of sub. It's not like well, some of them are dead and some of them, you know, just have really bad flesh wounds. It's not. We're still talking about, as you say, a kind of extreme condition, right? And so we, I think, we can still say if we say it's only people in this kind of extreme uh, condition who are are losing themselves, are losing their lives uh, in. In more or less complete way, um, who are who are incorporated here? It's not you know we don't have anybody who's just been inconvenienced or even not. And again, this is what m- makes you think. I mean, is unless Herodotus really is different, that she seems to fit in with this group. Um, yeah, yeah, Mac. There's uh, very little textual evidence to suggest that uh, Herodotus isn't part of this group. But maybe she is mad because I'm not sure if anyone. Yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, I would say it's hard for me to imagine that we are not supposed to assume that she's happy, consenting, and that the two of them live happily ever after. Um, I mean, I can imagine a particularly, you know, like macabre film version of this where, like, you have this pseudo-happy ending except Herodotus is, in fact, like, completely insane the whole rest of the time and has completely lost her mind and is unaware of her surroundings and Sir Orphrey was like, hooray, we're back together again and everyone's like, I'm very uncomfortable. I mean, <laughs> that would be interesting. I mean, I could tell there's, the, the, you know, there are, like, some, some, some directors I could imagine doing a really provocative film version of this. <laughs> But it's hard for me to read the original poem in that way. I mean, I don't think that that's uh, the kind of, you know, experimental, you know, psychological fiction that we're reading here. Um, I mean, it says they're all dead or mad, and Rogus isn't dead. But she's being released. Uh, and, and, I mean, I do, without any clarification... 
all of the prompts that we're given are that they have a happy ending. And so I think unless we're really told that there's something, because that would be something emphatically uh, and uh, with a sort of horrible irony unhappy about their ending. Uh, and, and I think that we would need some kind of direct cue to suspect that. But, but I agree, it's still interesting. Um, one of the things that I find really fascinating about the ending of the poem, and we'll come back to this, is the extent to which Orfeo and Herodotus's relationship is not the focus of the end. We are, I think, led to understand or assume, and I, I agree with you, as you point out, it really is an assumption that they are, in fact, mutually happy and live happily ever, ever, ever after. But I, I think we're led to assume that. But it's not an emphasis. It's not what the poem really dwells on. What the poem really dwells on is Orpheus' return to his kingdom and, of course, the exchanges with his steward. Now, that, I think, makes perfect sense in light of all of the emphasis that was placed upon Orpheus' departure from his kingdom, right? That's the loop that's being closed there at the end of the poem. But especially given, as we looked at before, the way that the intro to the poem emphasizes the love angle of it, right? That this is, a, this is among other things, a love poem that we're going to be hearing. It doesn't really end like a love poem. We don't even get even a snatch of happy reunion. You know, we don't even get a glimpse of, you know, Herodotus being released and coming running to him and him going running to her and, you know, like some sort of slow motion, slightly misty shot of the two of them. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't get a, a, a glimpse of that. And I think that that's it. I, I kind of expect that. I would have expected that. Um, so I, I, I do think it's significant that we don't get that. Not significant in the sense that it implies there's something really horribly awry with that, but significant in the sense that this poem has clearly chosen to lay the emphasis elsewhere. And that fact, I think, is interesting. And therefore should lead us to, uh, to really pay attention to what it is that the poem does lay that final emphasis on. Jordan, go ahead. Um, there's not a whole lot of uh, data for this, but Jonas is, as far as you know, the ages of theory go, fairly least 10 years, maybe not that long ago, theory. Who knows how long these people have been here? Um, maybe she's relatively unknown because, you know, she had, if we're assuming theories of fraud, which is one of the two options we have considering, then maybe she's getting subject to more of the precious spells than just being kidnapped. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, here we don't get much differentiation, especially if other people, maybe all, maybe some of the other people there in that courtyard of horrors were also on the outing previously and were part of the crowd of happy people who also, remember, were part of the happy people who intervened to drag Herodotus away and say, no, 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 don't talk to him, don't talk to him, you can't talk to him, right? Um, it's the only other thing we see those people doing. Um, but we do see them out on a happy outing, you know, in the in the river valley. So, yeah, I don't know. We, as you say, we do have not very much, uh, not very much data for that. Um, but I do, think, I do think that it's an interesting question. Um, I want to move on, and I want to sort of hang on to this, especially uh, in as much as it sort of talks about the relationship between the fairy king and the people that he now has under him, that he has brought into his entourage. Um, what do you notice about the depiction of the fairies and the fairy king and queen when he actually is brought in before them and does his big performance? Anything strike you as especially noteworthy? We get some repetitions, right? Like the shiny crowns, 
turns out his queen has one too. The whole place is filled with this splendor. That is, a bright light is everywhere. The, the, the uh, fairy kingdom appears to be whatever else it is, a, you know, 24 hours a day sunglasses kind of place. It's bright light, constant. I want to look especially at the exchange that the fairy king and Orfeo have, both before and after he sings. What does the fairy king say to him when he appears before the throne, before he performs his music? Yeah, I didn't call you, right? I don't, I don't remember sweeping in and taking you away by magic, right? You're not dead or incapacitated in any way, right? But no, he's, I, 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 you were not called here. What are you doing? It is very foolhardy for you to come. Now, there's a sort of a reply to this, right? Namely, well, you let me in, though, didn't you? I knocked on the gate. He didn't sneak in. He hasn't broken in. He knocks on the gate and says, Hi, I'm a minstrel. Can I come and play here? And the porter lets him in. So no, he wasn't summoned. He wasn't called. Um, so the fairy king doesn't say, Oh my gosh, what are you doing here? Get out. He says, That was pretty foolhardy for you to come without being summoned. And Arpheus says, Hey, it's what harpers do. It's what minstrels can do, right? Even if we haven't been asked, we go and we sing places. It's the custom of minstrels. I'm only a poor minstrel, he says. Uh, The editors in the footnotes suggest that Orfeo tells a lie here. But I'm not actually sure that he has. He is only a poor minstrel. I mean, yes, by birth he's a king, and he still has his sort of rights to that kingdom way, but he left that behind for 10 years. He's he's been just a poor minstrel. The only thing that he's kept is his harp. Um, I'm not sure that I would go all the way there with uh, accusing him of, of lying. Um, is he concealing the fact that he... Now, it is interesting that he does not come in and say right up front, hi, I'm here for my wife, right? It is true that he does have a motivation besides simply bringing pleasure and entertainment and music wherever he goes. But it is not untrue to say, I am a minstrel and I've come here to play for you. And he is effective in getting the fairy king to make a rash promise, uh, which is a very popular motif in medieval romances. Um, Lots of people make rash promises. King Arthur was pretty famous for this. Uh, And uh, you see it it a lot. Um, It makes it... uh, a moment. It, we, it last semester in my foundations class, when we were reading the New Testament. I always kind of chuckle at the moment in the Gospels when uh, two of the disciples try to make Jesus make a rash promise. You know, they come up to him and they're like, promise that you'll give us whatever we tell you. But Jesus has none of it. He's like, first tell me what it is, right? And then he says no. Um, but uh, but like, man, that's going to work for hundreds of years in medieval poetry. Man, I'm disappointed. Um, but anyway, the fairy king the fairy king makes this rash promise. Now, what did you notice about the reaction about his music? It's a really striking scene, I think. What happens when he plays? It's a little odd. So odd that you might perhaps go back and check to make sure you're translating it properly. Didn't, like, everybody in the palace come and lay by his feet, even in the headless Yeah, well, uh, it doesn't <laughs> specify the headless people, but everybody, yeah, yeah. Everybody who hears him comes and lies down at his feet. 
Brittany? It reminded me of when he was playing Forest <coughs> and all the animals came around and listened. Yeah, it's a very direct parallel and a kind of a surprising one. I mean, here you have him, you know, we see the reaction of sort of lower nature that is lower than his nature to him. All the, the beasts and the birds come flocking in and gather around him. And then as soon as he stops singing, scatter, right? Um, but his music is able temporarily to suspend their fear of him. So similarly, when here he is surrounded by this otherworldly glory far surpassing anything in his experience um, and far above him, the same thing happens, right? Uh, just as the animals suspend their fear of him and come and sit at his feet, so the fairies suspend their superiority over him and come and lie down at his feet. Exactly the same way. Um, that's, that's pretty striking. That's pretty striking. And it certainly seemed to suggest some things about music. Music and the power of his music being one of the threads that runs through this entire story, which we're reminded of a couple times at the end of the poem. Now, when he asks for his request, the fairy king says, name anything and I will give it to you. And he says, could I have my wife, please? Uh, or he doesn't say my wife. Can I have her, please? Um, that one who's asleep under the imp tree over there. The fairy king objects. Why? On what basis exactly does he object? Beth? Exactly. You would be a, you, you'd be a sorry couple, right? His, his, his objections appear to be aesthetic, primarily. And I think that that's important. It's not a class objection, which it might be, right? He doesn't say, oh, she's a queen and you're a peasant. That's horrible, what you're suggesting. He doesn't go by class. He goes by appearance. She's beautiful and you, eh, not so much. Right? But okay. And, and, and Orfeo has his sort of gentle riposte ready. Right? It would be even more unsightly for you not to keep your word. Right? That would be a greater violation than the aesthetic violation of shaggy, dirty, old, ugly guy with beautiful queen. Um, and again, this is a moment, you know, you think of how impossible it would be for a modern storyteller to tell this bit of this story with this kind of brevity, right? Nothing from her, no reaction from him, no description of their reunion at all. Just, and they left, right? Um, fascinating, fascinating. And again, it's the kind of thing, as I sort of have cautioned you before, remember that old books, you know, people who, who read old books and who wrote old books had very different expectations, very different narrative desires. They, what they looked for in a story was very different from what we look for in a story. Um, and there will be lots of times when you can see moments like this where you're like, how, how could you possibly miss that opportunity to do the kind of thing which, I mean, imagine what a movie would do with that. Imagine what a, what a modern novelist would do with that. Um, could you imagine what a modern editor would say if a novelist was like, yeah, so then they got together, but I just decided, like, whatever, I'm, I'm just going to, like, mention in a sentence that they got together and move on to the next chapter. Like, it's, it's like, inconceivable from a modern perspective, but um, it's not at all inconceivable uh, from a medieval perspective. Christine? Um, I don't know if this is strange, but... I, I, just, I guess the mystery of, like, the fairy king and, like, what he knows and, like, what his powers are and, like, 
I don't know, just trying to wrap my head around it. Like, I feel that he, it's, like, he wouldn't know that she was a queen and that, I don't know, maybe her king husband would be out searching for her. Like, I don't think, like, I feel like maybe he might know what's up or maybe he just kind of took her and didn't question her identity and was just like, whatever. Like, it is very puzzling, and I don't think I have any answers there. One thing that I think that we can see, the mere fact of his getting swept up into a rash vow shows that he's not, you know, not totally in control. That we should not be looking at him as this sort of all-wise, all-knowing guy behind the scenes. Um, he gets, well, I almost said taken in, but that's not quite right. I mean, it's not like Orfeo is... is swindling him here. Um, but he gets swept away anyway um, and makes a promise without thinking about it and then has to follow through on it. And so that by itself, I think, shows us that it's, he's not the mastermind who knows all and is... Um, and I mean, although I th- I mean, it's possible that we could make a version of this story in which the fairy king knew that exactly this was going to happen all along and has like been orchestrating the whole thing from behind the scenes. It's, it's like, not to like that extent, but I feel like, you know, with all with his choicey um, selection of people in his court, like, mm-hmm. that he would know something about her, but it's just kind of like, oh, she's pretty, I'll take her. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be, and I, I, I do think, at least potentially, we can see that in his emphasis at the end, because he doesn't emphasize that she's a queen. That seems to be, for him, not what really matters. What really matters is simply the aesthetic, is that she's so beautiful, right? Now, there's, there's a non-coincidental connection between her queenliness and her beauty from within the romance framework. But for him, it really doesn't seem to matter. Um, nor would his birth matter. All that matters is his, is his sort of appearance. And on the one hand, that seems... It's hard to say. Is, is that more shallow or less shallow? I'm not sure, but it's, but it's different in any case. It, it shows a different standard um, in, in The King of Fairies, and I think that that's, yeah, I mean, that's something important to remember. Will, go ahead. Um, it really surprised me when this actually worked, because it's, very, it's so human of the fairy king. Like, like Orfeo says, I want her, and the fairy king says, well, I don't want to give you her. And Orfeo said, well, it looked really bad if you didn't. And then he does. And it's just like, well, you think that you, he's the fairy king. You know, he's the king of fairies. You just say, no. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, it, it does also show that there appear to be rules that he's operating by, that he is in some sense bound, even in violation of his own principles, whatever exactly those principles are. Clearly, the two of them going off together, such a sorry couple, uh, it, it violates those principles, and yet he seems to be bound um, by keeping his promise. So, so yes, he is not able just to do anything that he, that he wants to at all. Um, yeah, I agree. There's no... Yeah, I'm the king of fairies over here. Shut up. I'm not giving her to you. Uh, um, yeah, that's... I agree. I think that's interesting. Marta? Well, yeah, and I think um, if he hadn't kept his promise, that would be going along the, the perspective that the fairies are kind of malicious, which I don't think they really are. Um, although they do threaten Herodas, they do possibly save people right before death. Um, obviously, he is a man of his fairy of his word. So I think it's more ambiguous. It's not quite black and white whether they're good or evil. Yeah. It's more in between than that. Just like 
Yeah, I mean, and I'm, I'm glad you put it in those terms, Marta, because I agree. I think that that's something that is really important for us to take away from this story. Um, that whatever conclusions we come to, it seems pretty clear that the fairies don't fall into the kind of neat moral categories. Um, and by this, I don't mean that I think this poem is suggesting that you know good and evil are insufficient categories, but rather just the system they're operating under is different from ours. And the way that they look at things and the things that they can do and can't do and the things that they understand and can't understand are so different from us um, that even if good and evil is objective and applies to them as well as to us, we can't judge their actions because we don't understand them well enough to be able to tell whether or not they're good or evil. And this is something um, which is we're going to see quite a lot of. That is uh, the really kind of uncertain perspective of human beings on, on uh, and that inability to judge that the people in the story will have and that we as readers are going to have pretty frequently. So I think that that's really important. One thing I don't want to pass over, and it would be easy to do because it's only one line long, um, but I think, again, especially if we're recalling the story to which this is parallel, that is the Orpheus and Eurydice story, um, there's a line which is really very conspicuous. The line I'm thinking of is 476, which just describes their departure. Rit as he come, the way he yada. The way he came in, he left. Okay, that seems kind of unremarkable. But if we remember Orpheus and Eurydice, why is that remarkable? Jordan? Didn't uh, Orpheus take a different route to the underworld than you were with him? Because there's one way entry to the underworld? The whole emphasis and tragedy of the Orpheus and Eurydice story is his departure and the difficulty of his departure. Right? The condition. Uh, and see, and this is how... This is how the god of the underworld gets out of letting her go. Not exactly gets out. He, does, he, he, he keeps his promise to give Orpheus what he asks for, which is to let his wife come back up with him. But he qualifies it. Right? If, as so long as you do not look back at her, until you get out to the... She will be following behind you. Trust me, she will be following behind you. Don't look back until you get back up to the overworld... If you do look back, then she will be lost forever and return, and you will never be able to bring her back up. That, and, that, and, and of course, he gets almost up to the top, and then he, does, he can't stand it, and he does look back. And there are many different versions of what motivates him to look back, but in all of the stories, he does look back, and she's lost. And, and this story does not end happily, and it's a, it's a very tragic, very moving story. And here in one line, and the way he came in, he left by that same way bringing her with her, no problems, no conditions, that entire aspect of the story, so central to the Orpheus story, utterly absent from this version. Which is interesting. Again, that's, that's not, what, not what he's interested in. I mean, and here, Will, I come back to your point about you know, his authority as fairy king, right? He doesn't even do what Hades does in the Greek story, right? He doesn't even go so far as to say, Okay, I will say, I will keep to my promise, but I'm going to put a condition, I'm going to place a condition upon it. I'm going I'm I'm to add a taboo to it, which now makes it difficult for you to actually achieve the thing that you want. He could have done that and still kept his promise, but he doesn't. And he had every reason to because the original story did, but he didn't. Instead, where is the focus at the end of the story? 
Liz? Yeah, his return to the kingdom and the response to him by the steward in particular, sort of as representative of, of all the people there. You know, in a broader sense, we'd say that, you know, the question is, will his previous life remember him? He's been, not only has he been away for 10 years, he's been in ferry, right? I mean, he's coming back from this experience. Can he just return? Will his kingdom remember him? Will his people remember him? Will they accept him? And it turns out, yeah, actually they will. And they do. Notice their first response to him is much like the fairy king's. Look at this ugly, nasty, dirty, hairy guy. They don't seem to be concerned by the fact that he's a peasant and and dressed in a beggar's clothes. Um, But they have an aesthetic reaction. And then he plays music again. We see a third performance by Orpheus. Orpheo, look at me, making mistakes. Uh, A third performance by Orpheo, right? The first with the beasts, the second with the fairies, and the third with the people of his own court. And what happens? What does the steward do? He asks where he got that from. Right. Yeah, well, he's... he's, Yeah. Which is interesting, right? The reaction is not, I am so ravished by your music that I can't... Where'd you get the harp? (laughs) I recognize that harp. I think that's interesting because he... He doesn't, like, recognize the harp at first and say, wait, like, don't play. Like, I've seen that harp before. He waits after he plays, and he's just, like, it kind of makes you think, like, is that where his talent comes from, the harp? And not? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're told that he's, it's not just, like, a magical harp that lets him play. But, but yeah, I mean, it is, the harp is connected with his identity, right? It's not just the power of his music in general. When he plays before the fairies, the fairies don't say, are you King Orvio? Right? They don't care. They're just like, wow, that music was awesome. Right? We are affected by your music. We don't care who you are. It turns out you're this ugly, shabby, really disgusting character. But hey, the music, it was awesome. We can relate to that. Right? We don't care about the rest. Here, we see the reaction is not, oh, the music, wow. Instead, it was, wait, wait, that's Orfeo's harp. They care about him, not about his music. And then Orfeo asks his very long, and I find very amusing, theoretical, <laughs> makes his long if statement, if, theoretically, it happened that this were the case, then this is what would happen. Um, and as long as that clause is, the steward has no problem processing it. What does the steward do the minute he realizes that this is actually Orpheo? He falls to his He dumps over the tables, right? He like, I don't know, I, and I can't tell quite from the language whether he's, like, jumping over the tables or whether he's kicking the tables aside. But anyway... He, he, he throws himself across the room at Orpheo's feet again, right? The third person or group of people to lie down at Orpheo's feet. Not in response to his music this time, but in response to his identity and his love for him personally. And again, this is where This is what I would come back to, both in sort of the de-emphasis of the departure from 
the fairy world theme that this story does, the way that this story departs from the original version in that way, and also the de-emphasis, as we were discussing before, the de-emphasis of the love story as well, that that also gets shoved aside at the end of this poem. And what matters is Orfeo's personal reconnection to his kingdom and to his people. Remember, he was playing the harp for inferiors in the beasts. He was playing the harp for superiors in fairy. Now he's playing the harp for equals, and his equals don't care about the music. <laughs> they care about the harp, and, and because it leads them to him personally. Um, though the external manifestations of this are the same. That is, people lying down at his feet for different reasons. Jordan? Um, I, I think it's interesting. This maybe suggests that theories, as much as we don't understand theories, maybe they don't get us. Because, you know, the steward gets it. He you know, plays up his head state, right? He's like, ah, you're so old. I, I see what you're trying to say there. And the theories, he's, he'll also kind of like, say, I, I want that lady who you took. And, you know, and he doesn't like, oh, you were lucky. But yet, you're ugly. <laughs> he doesn't really get the motivation behind it. He just makes these assumptions that are not. And you don't know, see any evidence that the theories understand us any better than we understand them. I mean, I think that that's, that that's possible. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, it's the fairy king never even asks, why, why her, right? Like, wait, you're, were you like her long-lost husband, husband coming to retrieve her all the time? I mean, remember that he was completely disregarding of Orfeo at first. As Orfeo was there, present, standing right next to her when the fairy king came to take her away, right? Um, and he was obviously totally ignored by the fairy king, who obviously doesn't recognize him or doesn't care if he does, right? So I agree, there does seem... I I think that we can see some kind of disconnection in the other direction as well. Notice where the poem ends. I told you we would come back to this, and I want to. The very end of the poem, the sort of... Not even denouement, the little... Closing. In 597... Harpur is in Bretagne after Than, heard who this Marvile began, and mad hereof a lie of godly king, and nymphed it after the king. That lay Orfeo is he hotter. God is the lie, sweet is the nota. Thus comes Sir Orfeo out of his cara. God grant us all well to fara. Amen. <laughs> now, amen is a traditional ending to anything, so that's great. Um, but you notice where it ends up, as I was emphasizing at the beginning we begin and end this song by talking about the song. And it might seem like a kind of a stock intro, but it's not necessarily that common. Not all medieval lays begin and end by saying, gold is the lie, sweet is the nota. Wasn't that a beautifully harped song that you were just listening to? Um, Huh? Please tip your harper. Right, right. Don't forget to tip your harper. Yeah, um, yeah. Sort of this, this shameless kind of uh, kind of appeal, uh, you know, that like Puck will come out and make at the end of Midsummer Night's Dream, for instance. Right. Um, now it's time to clap for us. Right. But that's not because of the emphasis of this story, though. That doesn't seem to be at least not the sole emphasis here at the end. Right. Um, that is, we're reminded that this is. This is itself, this is, this is harping that we've been hearing, and it's the harping of Sir Orfeo. We're still, you know, do we not hear anything from Herodotus at the end? Well, yeah, it wasn't her story. This was Orfeo's story. Um, so, you know, if you want the lay of, of Dom Herodotus 
Ask another time. That's not the story we're telling right now. Right? Um, Mad herov a lie of God leaking. This is a song, and you think about the way in which the song, the music, establishes this connection, but from the beasts up through to fairy, through humans in the middle, but for the humans in the middle, what really mattered was Orfeo himself, and the music was only the evidence that he was who he was. Presumably, he could have recognized his heart before he started playing it, right? I mean, he lo- must have looked odd. He's this beggar man who looks really horrible and is dressed in rags, but he's carrying this gorgeous harp. And nobody comments on it. I mean, uh, it, the steward just meets him in the street and is like, oh, I see you're a harper. Come back and harp for us. Despite the fact, I'm not even going to mention the fact that you look like crap. I'm just going to invite you back because I treat all harpers well for the sake of, 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 of good old King Orpheo, right? But when he plays, now they recognize the harp and therefore him, right? And this is what, what the music and the harping does, does throughout. So there's a way in which what the story is doing, what, the song, what this song as it is written is doing, is being enacted there in the story, especially at the end. He tells, we don't know what song he sings there in the court, but that lay of Sir Orfeo is what, is, you know, sort of what is established. His own story and his own identity is what is established through his music. Um, however, I have to let you go. For next time, we will begin Sir Lanfall. Our readings are going to get a little bit longer. Brace yourselves. Not too long, but anyway, we, we will get there. Um, Sir Lanfall, whose story is quite different and whose encounters with the fairies, you will notice, are quite strikingly different from Sir Orpheus. Okay. For the next class, we will start Sir Lown Fall, so go back a few episodes in the podcast queue and find the audio recording I made of that poem, and give it a listen prior to tuning in for Class 5. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed. <laughs>